It says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. You see that, right? This is the region that he's, they're talking about right here. Um, it's amazing to me how small the state of Israel is. This is a nation state, and you could fit about three of them in Arizona. Uh, six hours, you can go from the no- most northern tip to the most southern tip in six hours. And in three hours, you can go from the widest part to the widest part, from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the, the Jordan River. Um, so it's not very big, you know. And Jesus was all over this place. He was up here in Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea, you get it, it's Caesar, right? And this was uh, in honor of Caesar Augustus, or Tiberius, I think it was. You can correct me any time. Okay, any of y'all who went on the trip, if I say something wrong, either make a large gahoff. <laughs> Are you kidding me? All right, or just correct me outright. Okay, um, but Philip was one of Herod the Great's sons. Remember Herod the Great, the one who, who was ruthless, right? It was said it was more um, fortunate to be Herod's pig than to be his child because he killed a lot of his children who he feared would overthrow him in one way or another. But he also was one heck of an engineer. Uh, you see the buildings that he built and the aqueducts that he held through the sky really knew his stuff. When he died, he um, gave to four of his sons different areas of Palestine, and this area was given to his son Philip, so therefore it's called Caesarea Philippi, okay? This, the uh, Caesarea of Philip. Um, Herod built, a, well, I'm going to show you, let's see. Um, let me just read to you from Josephus. Josephus, the, the Roman historian, Jewish actually, but hired by Rome. He said, when Caesar had further bestowed upon him Herod, another additional country, he built there also a temple of white marble hard by the fountains of the Jordan. The place is called Paneum, or Paneus, Caesarea Philippi, Paneus, Paneum, Pan, Pan, like the peanut butter. Only this is named after the god Pan. Um, the god Pan was, you've probably seen pictures of it. It is, uh, has a goat's, a man, half man, half goat. It has horns coming out of the guy's head, and it has the bottom portions of a goat. And he was the god of agriculture, he was the god of fertility, and he was also the god of fear. Um, the armies would pray to God Pan that he would strike fear into the hearts of their enemies, and therefore cause panic. That's where we get the word, panic, is from pan. It also has, they had the stories of him leaving at twilight from Paneum, where they really believed it was actually his, his main residence, okay? And he would go into the towns and the villages and pop up in this ghastly form and just freak people out, causing panic, okay? All right, so um, there is a top of a mountain that's raised to an immense height at the side beneath or at its bottom. A dark cave opens itself within which there is a horrible precipice that descends abruptly to a vast depth. 
It contains a mighty quantity of water, which is immovable. And when anybody lets down anything to measure the depth of the earth beneath the water, no length of cord is sufficient to reach it. Now to the fountains of Jordan rise at the roots of this cavity outwardly. And as some think, this is the utmost origin of the Jordan River. Okay, let's go to the next picture. All right, this is us. We're having a Bible study. Actually, I was supposed to teach on this day, but I really, really had to use the restroom, you know. No one told me it was a half mile away. (laughs) All right, but I walked to the restroom. When I got back, they were already engaged in teaching. And this is at Panium, the place I just described. Next picture. Okay, this is uh, some of the spring water that flows out of Panium, okay, it used to come out of that cave we looked at, which I will show everybody in a moment, but there was an earthquake in the 1800s that shifted the ground, and so it sprang from another area. Next picture. All right, this is the area. This to the left is the, um, what do they call it, the, um, the Grotto of Pan, all right? This is, has that deep, deep area where they felt actually they believed in the day that it led to hell. And this is called the gates of hell. It's coming to play here in a moment as we get into what Jesus says. And it's like Josephus says, you could drop a line down there, but you could never find the bottom of it. So they felt like it just descended into the depths of the earth. And this is where they would worship the God Pan, um, I don't know if they told you guys this when they were giving this study, but this is a place where a lot of shepherds would come to with their goat herds. And they felt like to appease Pan so that they would be prosperous, they would sacrifice a goat and they would throw the carcass into the water. Now, if the carcass sank, then, you know, that's Pan accepting your offering. But if it floated... You got to go get another goat, all right? And you keep this up and up until you finally get one that sinks. So you can imagine what the water was like with everybody sacrificing like that. Well, that was my next point. You're right. No, that's that's okay. Yeah, if you want to come on up, come on up. (laughs) I'm sorry, Hannon. Hannon gave me the worst time on the bus, guys. You got to know that. All right. Um. Yes, they would sacrifice their children to guarantee their fertility, which is kind of self-defeating when you think about it, you know, because the same thing was that. If they floated, it didn't work. Pan didn't take it. I mean, how many kids you got, right? And you wanted a lot of kids because it's an, an agrarian society, and the more kids you have, the more cheap labor you have to go do the work in the fields. So if your wife isn't very fertile or it's your problem, um, you want kids somehow, and so you're going to sacrifice to the god Pan, right? Good stuff, right? All right, next picture. This is what um, artists and historians think it might have looked back, back in the day. To the left there, you see the Temple of Augustus. Now, this was all built uh, about 15 B.C., before Christ. And all of these, from left to right, were built in sequential order. So when Jesus was there that day in Matthew 16, this is what he would have seen. 
Okay? So you have the temple to Augustus that backs up into the grotto of Pan. The next we have, go ahead and just hit the next picture, the grotto of Pan. This is also known as the grotto of Pan. You can see the, the dugout. Oh, you know what I need, Vince? Like that, don't get, don't, ladies, don't you do that when you need things? Don't you just make noises? Okay. You see the carved out spaces in the rock, and there would be the deity pan in there, and then in the, above him would be the, um, these, in these places would be other gods, but more notably the god uh, Echo, the goddess Echo. You see, Pan had a thing for Echo. Uh, Echo had a thing for her own voice. Where we get the word Echo, okay? And so he was chasing her all around. And you got to understand that not only is, is Pan the god of um, agriculture and such, he is also the god of sexual prowess, okay? So he's always chasing the nymphs all around. And he, he, ca- he gets almost to capturing Echo. She turns into reeds. Okay, this, I'm just telling you the story, guys, okay? Take it for what it's worth. He cut the reeds, and then he found out that if he blew in the reeds, they would make a sound. So he cut them into like five or six different lengths, and then he could take echo around and play it as a pan pipe. All right. All right. <clears throat> You're wondering what they were smoking when they wrote that one, right? But... <laughs> Still the same. Okay, next we have, this is the temple to Zeus. Obviously, it's the biggest, baddest complex there on this little mountain structure, and it was to the, the god of gods, if you will, the temple of Zeus. Next to the temple of Zeus, this little courtyard here is the court of Nemesis. You, know what, you guys know when you say someone is your nemesis, it's someone who doesn't like you very much and fights with you, right? And is your adversary. Well, this is the Roman goddess of justice and vengeance. That's Nemesis's little courtyard. Then up here, there's two places here. Next slide. This is the temple of the sacred goats. They had two platforms for the sacred goats. You see them right there? They're dancing goats. This is the sacred dancing goats. All right. Now, what else went on here was bestiality with goats. And this was in the wide open in front of everybody. This was happening all the time. This is where they worship. That's how you worship Pan. That's what you did. For them, in that day, no different than going to the Super Bowl, dressing up and painting your face and screaming really loud. A little different? Yeah, but for their mindset, for their mindset, it was celebration, okay? This is the backdrop of where Jesus has this conversation with Peter in Matthew 16. Um, The Jews, the rabbis, forbade a good Jew to come there, but Jesus brought his men there anyway. It was a simple way to let the world know, both the seen world and the unseen world, that there's a coming battle for the souls of men. This is known as the gates of hell. And Jesus is going to say, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the profession of faith in me. It's like throwing down the gauntlet. It's like getting in Satan's face. 
<clears throat> try as you may, you will not prevail. And it's interesting to me how one of the most sinful places in Israel was where he reveals himself to be the true God of Israel. I would have thought it would have been the temple, on the temple mount, inside the Holy of Holies, right? But he chooses the most degraded place in Israel to go. Now look at verse 13. It says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am, the Son of Man am? Now, of course, I'm thinking Peter and the guys are looking around saying, who are you talking about? These people? We don't talk to these people. I have no clue what they think about you. They probably think, yeah, you're the guy standing over there. Who are you talking about? Well, who was he talking about? The ones who should know better. The ones who, like Anna and Simeon, should have been studying the word and watching the signs of the times to know that it was time for the Messiah to come and visit. So, he's not asking, though, out of insecurity or a lack of awareness of his own identity, and he's not conducting an opinion poll. That's what I do. Honey, does this look all right on me? Does this look okay? Yeah. Does these shoes match? What do you mean my socks have to match? What are you talking about? I walk around insecure all the time, but Jesus is not insecure. He is asking an honest question using what we call in education the Socratic method. In other words, he's asking a question for them to start thinking about the answer. He's drawing them to a point. He's going to lead them through logical deduction who he really is. Now, this confession that he's trying to draw out of them is basic to our salvation. Do you guys know that? Romans 10, 9 and 10, why don't you turn there real quick and keep your thumb where you're at because you're going to be coming back to it. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Who do you say that I am? If you will confess with your mouth that he is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. The confession comes from the heart. It should come from the heart. Not just what you think and what other people's opinion is. It's from your heart. So he's saying, guys, who are people saying that I am? Let's go back to verse 14 in Matthew 16. Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Obviously, there's some confusion about who you are. Herod thought Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. He was freaking out about that. Um, a lot of people knew about the prophecies uh, that Elijah would come again in Malachi chapter 4. Matter of fact, every Shabbat, Shabbat they would set a chair for Elijah at the table 
because they were waiting for his return. The kids would go outside to see if Elijah was walking down the street, you know. And of course, they all came back with the same answer. Nope, not yet, but he's coming. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet, and he had a very tender heart that was broken at the sight of the decay of his own nation, much like many of us here. And that attitude was certainly seen in Jesus, who was known as a man of man of sorrows, all right? So a lot of different opinions and confusion about who Jesus was. And the point is clear is that you can never make a true decision about Christ by taking a poll of the people. But some people do get their spiritual knowledge this way. Um, you know, they ask this one guy, what do you believe? He says, well, I believe what my pastor believes. What does your pastor believe? Well, he believes what I believe. Well, what do you both believe? Well, we believe what our church believes. You know, I said, okay. My uncle, uh, when he was uh, going to Saudi Arabia to work for Boeing, he uh, had to have documentation that he was a Christian. So he needed a pastor's signature, and he asked me to go down to my pastor and sign for him that he was a Christian. And of course, I was a Christian, and I knew he was, he, he was agnostic at best, right? And I, and, you know, I'm sorry. I am my mother's child. So I scoffed. I said, you're a Christian? He goes, well, yes, I was born in the United States. Yeah. Of course, that's the way a lot of people look at it, right? Um, in American culture, Jesus is an enlightened being. He's a good moral teacher, although we dislike most of his morals, <laughs> you know. The general tendency was and is to underestimate Jesus to give him a measure of respect and honor, but to fall short of honoring him for who he really is. And a lot of people think that doesn't matter. It absolutely matters, guys. Look where he's standing, in front of the gates of hell, the most debauched place in Israel at that time. And he is throwing down the gauntlet before Satan, and he's going to make a declaration that he indeed is God. So the important thing is not what others say, but what you and I personally say. And that's the question he poses to Peter. Look at verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, like Peter, we're all going to be judged by our answer to that question. Who do we say that he is? Look at Peter's unflinching response. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. I don't think a nanosecond passed between the question and the answer. Just, yeah, he knew. He'd been watching Jesus. He heard Jesus teach. He'd been observing his lifestyle. He, he, he doesn't just give his opinion, but he gives a heartfelt conviction, a conviction so strong that he will be crucified upside down because of it, you know. I would, if I really didn't believe, for the sake of peer pressure and to you know, make Jesus happy so he wouldn't get angry with me, might say the same thing because I'm thinking that's what he wants to hear, right? But as soon as they start to put the nail on my wrist on the cross, I said, no, guys, I really didn't mean that. You know, I was really only kind of kidding. You know, I, I really didn't mean that. If I really didn't believe, and Peter, the same thing, but to be crucified upside down and hold to it to his death. And, and before that, tradition tells us that he watched his own wife be crucified. So was it a heartfelt conviction? Absolutely. Now, he's got a lot of growing to do. You guys know the story of Peter. 
He's got a lot of growing to do. And just in a few verses, he's going to be called Satan. So <laughs> he's going to go from the top to the bottom real fast. The Jews properly thought that to be the son of the living God was to make a claim to deity itself. In John 5.18, it tells us that the Jews sought the more to kill him. Why? Because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said that God was his father. He's the son of God, therefore making himself equal with God. Peter has the right response. You're the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Verse 17, it says, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, dude, you just got revelation. You just got the word of knowledge. You just got stoked by the Holy Spirit, man. When he says blessed, the word blessed is markarios. It means oh, how happy. It's, it's Greek for stout, okay? You are a blessed, blessed, blessed person. Now, this brings up something that we all need to really understand as we war for the souls of men and women. And I hope you are warring for them. You know, we're supposed to be storming the gates of heaven. I mean, the gates of hell, all right? Now, it says the gates of hell won't prevail against the profession of Christ, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that he is the son of the living God. That profession is what Jesus has built his church upon all of these centuries. But he makes that, that, that statement that the gates of hell won't prevail. Now, you think about the backdrop, right? You think about what they're looking at and what is supposed to be the literal gates of hell. All right. Well, I don't know what you use gates for, but typically they keep things in and things out, right? That's what a gate is, is all for. But I've never seen a gate chase anybody down the street. I've had enemies chase me down the street. I've had Sherry chase me around the house, all right? And I've done my best so that she did not prevail against me. But a gate prevailing? What are we talking about? How many of you are Lord of the Rings fans, any of you? How many of you ever heard of Lord of the Rings? <laughs> there is a scene um, in, the, in the, the first... I don't remember which one it was. But anyway, they are, the orcs are attacking Helm's Deep. And they are at the gate of Helm's Deep, which is supposed to be impenetrable. You're not supposed to be able to bust these gates and get down there. But they're busting on them and banging on them and banging on them. And if you remember the scene, they have this real big, huge mega orc running up. And he's got a bomb, right? And he throws the bomb inside. And that blows up the first gate which gets them into the second gate, and then they bring this huge mega battering ram, and they're slamming against the gate, slamming against the gate, until they finally breach the gate, and they flood Helmstein. Now reverse that with the church of Jesus Christ. We are supposed to be the orcs. Okay, you guys are all Christian orcs, 
Can orcs be saved? I don't know. And we are supposed to be busting down the gates of hell. We have his promise. It's not going to prevail against you. What's behind the gates of hell? Souls that are in bondage, that are locked there, who need to be set free. And you were one of them. I was one of those. And the gates were busted through. And my soul was saved. And so were you. We're supposed to be busy about busting down the gates, but instead what we often do is like what we did as tourists. We look at the gates. We marvel at the beauty of the gates, the strength of the gates, and then go on our way. We don't fight. We don't, we don't battle in prayer. Why is that so important? Well, 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. Did you guys once think the cross was foolish? Didn't you? No? Yeah, I, I remember saying in high school, like, ah, God is one God among many gods. We hear a lot of different ways. My own uh, dermatologist says, ah, there's just too many different ways for one way to be right. Yeah, well, there you go. So I don't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but I consider them foolishness, and I cannot understand them because these things, these principles, these truths are discerned only through the Spirit. In Matthew eleven twenty five, Jesus explains this experience. You can turn there if you like, Matthew eleven twenty five, And I have no idea where I'm at on the PowerPoint, guys, because I've gotten off track. It says, Jesus, at that time, Jesus answered and said, and this is his, his prayer. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And then you compare that with John 6.44. John 6.44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Do you see? There's a spiritual battle going on here. There's a spiritual component that I don't fully understand. I think that if I can just be logical with you, if I can just reason with you, that you will see it the way I see it, and you will come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then we'll all go to Peter Piper and get a pizza and play a few games. But that's not the way it is, is it? People look at you like your eyes just turn vertical. It's just stupid. You really believe this stuff? You really believe this? Well, the truth is, I would never have believed it if God hadn't opened up my eyes. So as you go with us through the 29 days of prayer, how many, any of you guys doing that, by the way? Awesome. Um, pray the Holy Spirit will open the eyes of the blind. But it's not a one and done prayer, guys. It's battle. It's battle, okay? The Jews thought they were chosen by God by virtue of their, their birth. 
And Jesus makes it clear that God must draw them before they can come to God. Everyone who responds to the Father will respond to the Son. We like to feel as though we're in charge, that we give ourselves to God. But the truth is, he calls, we come, we respond. None of us have come to Jesus on our own. We were drawn to him by the Father, and that's pretty cool. That the Father, the God of heaven and earth, the creator, was interested in me. Interested in me. 39 years ago, I met this cute Italian girl. Her name was Sherry Paglia. And I got to tell you, she showed some interest to me, and I was on cloud nine. You know, um, I was captured by her beauty, her charm, her intelligence, everything about her. How much more of a joy and high honor to consider that God has drawn me to Christ through his goodness. This understanding of God's initiative and salvation should make us more confident in evangelism. Knowing that God is drawing people and we can expect to see those whom the Father draws to come see him. See, I wish it was a little easier that we could look through those gates of hell and see the people on the other side and the ones who are looking towards us are the ones that want out, okay? And the ones that, that want out, that want to come to Christ, they have a little glowing RFID chip or something on their head. That was, well, there's one there, and there's one there, and there's one there. But we don't, do we? We don't. He does, but we don't know. So we share the gospel with whomever, everyone that we can. And for the ones who God has chosen to set free at that time and that, that day and that time, that's it. That's what we do. That's what we do. Isn't that right, Ben? That's what we do. Yeah. I see you, Ben. All right. Jesus said in verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, Peter's going to get a big head from this. He's going to turn right around, and Jesus, at this very same place, he's going to make a very fantastic uh, declaration. I'm not setting up my kingdom now, guys. It ain't happening, okay? I'm going to be crucified. Now, that was the furthest thing from their mind. And Peter, who gets revelation now, takes Jesus aside. I'm sure he took him by the shoulder and pulled him over to the side. Now, look, you've got to stop talking like this. It's getting everybody upset and unsettled. You know, you're the Christ, okay? You know, buck up, buddy. You're the Christ. You're not going to be crucified. And then Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. And Peter says, that's not very nice. Call me Satan. I, I get revelation from, didn't, you know, Isaiah says, uh, who directed the spirit of the Lord and who, or as his counselor has taught him. Peter would say, tried it once. How'd it work for you, Pete? Not so good. How many times have we been God's counselor? You know, how many times? Peter's getting ahead of himself. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's not savoring the moment nor understanding what brought him to that revelation. The point is this. All of the Lord's ministry to his disciples had prepared the way for this moment in time. Just as when he brought you to Christ... All of your experiences brought you to that moment in time to receive. And when you share the word of God, when you share with all of your heart and you pray with all of your heart and it just falls upon deaf ears, just understand that that's just part of 
the process. It's part of the process. Don't give up. Don't quit. Be sensitive to the Spirit. All right, verse 18 He says, I say to you, or Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You're Peter, small stone. And on this rock, this big stone, I'm gonna build my church. What big stone? The profession that he made. That's huge. That he is Christ. That he is the Messiah. That he is the son of the living God. That word prevail It means to be strong against someone. It's used in a hostile sense, meaning to overcome and vanquish, to get the upper hand. Used in in an absolute sense. The Amplified Version uh, renders verse 18, the gates of Hades, which is death, will not overpower by preventing the resurrection of Christ. So in one sense, standing here at the gates of hell, Jesus is saying to Satan, go ahead, try and keep me down. You're deluded. You think that by my death that it's over. Sorry, game not over. I know something you don't know. (laughs) Would you like to say that in an argument? I know something you don't know. I'm going to rise again. Eugene Peterson, in his rendering and translation, the message says, this is the rock on which I will put together my church. Notice he says, my church. This is his church. Y'all are his church. A church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. Not going to stop us. Nothing going to get us down. So we should be storming the gates of hell. All right. Last point before we partake of communion. Verse 17, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Well, I have to imagine that Jesus, at least at this moment, a few verses earlier, before the scowl comes out, is smiling on Peter. He's smiling on, not because of what Peter has done, but from the gain he has made in spiritual understanding and wisdom. All of us know, well, I say all of us. I know what it was like when Heather and Danae were a little tiny. And we'd see signs of growth and cognitive development. When their motor skills were coming in, they started doing that little thing, and then they began cruising around. And then they began that, 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 that talking, as it were. All right? And each, each milestone of development was a great joy to Sherry and I. What a great joy it was for Jesus to see Peter's development. And you know, the Bible says that heaven rejoices when a sinner repents. The the all of heaven rejoices. Your faith is so valuable, guys. It's so precious. And every time that you come to a place of knowledge and understanding, guess what? There's more coming. There's more coming. For Peter, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Right, Peter? Next lesson. I'm going to build my church on that profession. It's always, guys, higher up, further in, higher up, further in in Christ, and there never will be a time when that's not true. All right, Um, we're going to get ready for communion, and we're going to do it a little differently today. So um, 
Yeah, Natalie, come on up. And let me explain what's going to happen, and then eventually this will just become our routine. Um, gentlemen, we can go ahead and move the things off of here. And on both sides. These are communion cups made out of olive wood from Jerusalem. Okay? And these are a gift to you. After you take communion, you take these home and you can keep them and do whatever you want with them, okay? Even if you leave them here, that's okay too. Um, what I would like you to do when, after I pray is for this half of the middle section and this section to come down this way, go to where Roy is, he will help you, and then go around the edges and back to your seat, Okay. Same thing, you guys, you're smart, right? Right. But watch how many times we're going to have to re-explain this as we get up. That's right, that's right. We're talking about second service. We got this. And, and since you guys are both in the exact middle, um, yeah, no, no. You, you choose whichever way you want to go. So you get this, come to the center, um, go through that, and then go around the wall and in front of the sound table to get back to it. Uh, let's all stand. You may have noticed that in front of the pulpit here, I have a menorah. And this is typically a Jewish symbol of Judaism. But if you notice on this menorah, there is the Star of David, and there is an ichthys, or a fish. This is one of the earliest known symbols of the church even before the cross became a symbol for the church. The cross is precious. The cross will forever be a a symbol of the church to me. But this also is a symbol. In the book of Revelation, you see Jesus walking among seven golden lampstands. And what are those lampstands? They are menorahs that represent the the church. The church. So this will be now for for the remainder as long as I am the pastor. It's part of the symbol of who we are in Christ. The light of the world. The light of the world. The son of David, Jesus Christ. And of course, the fish. You guys know the story about the ichthys, right? When they were being persecuted, you never knew who you were talking to if they were going to be those who turn you in or brothers and sisters in Christ. So you would draw with your toe half of the ichthys, half of a fish. And if they drew the other part of it, you're talking to a brother. So there we go. I would pray that you would uh, meditate on the things that I shared this morning, the symbolism that is here, the fact that we are to be about storming the gates of hell and about the smile of God upon you for your faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But with faith, you get a smile. You get the ironic blessing, not the moronic blessing 
the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let's pray. Father, it has been good to be in your word and to explore some of the history of your land. And what it encourages me is that you're coming again and you will be here and you will rule in righteousness. There will be no more pain and no more sorrow. There will be no more bondage. But we will be free, truly, truly free. So as these people come forward to receive the elements of the body and the blood of Christ, may you minister to them even as you did to Peter. And may they sense and feel your smile upon their life. In Jesus' name.